we're checking in on a few of our state's eminent biologists and chemists. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Wednesday, May 17th, and this is In the Moment. I hope you have some fond-ish memories of your time in the biology or chemistry classrooms. And if you don't, then I hope you at least have some fond memories of these scientific in-the-moment conversations from the past few months. We'll hear from a scientist who studies the amphibians that call South Dakota home. And we'll replay a conversation with a researcher exploring how cancer cells communicate. Plus, we meet a professor surveying an ongoing battle happening in your garden. We're broadcasting today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. You may be seeing more of your amphibious neighbors lately. The weather is warming up, and so the state's frogs are out and hopping about. So are you seeing more frogs than usual or fewer? Those are questions that fascinate Dr. Jake Kirby. He's a biology professor and chair of the biology department at the University of South Dakota. He's not just an expert on frogs. It's pretty safe to call Jake Kirby a frog enthusiast. And it's hard not to share his enthusiasm once you learn more. Here's his conversation with Lori Walsh from back in February. He talked about climate change, amphibians, and what we can learn from the humble eastern cricket frog. First of all, where are the frogs during winter? Yeah, they, uh, that's a question that's commonly asked because uh, they don't seem to be out hopping around these days. They actually, uh, lots of different frogs have different strategies. Um, and one of the frogs we'll talk about, the cricket frog, they like to hide in what we call hibernacula. So they find little crevices um, in the dirt and sort of just crawl down into those holes. Uh, interestingly enough, that snow layer is actually good. So it provides sort of a protective barrier to keep them just above freezing. So they can actually uh, lower their, you know, their body temperatures lower because they're cold-blooded animals and they just sit tight and wait out the winter. Um, mm. Because they're so cool, you might think, how do they eat, right? I mean, they gotta sure. be starving like a bear. Do they store up fat and that kind of stuff? And they do a little bit, but uh, the fun thing about these kinds of animals is uh, when it gets cold, they just have a lower metabolism. So it's kind of what I wished would happen with me in the winter. <laughs> It doesn't seem to happen that way, but that's how they can survive and persist. They don't require much energy when it's, uh, you know, just above freezing, and so therefore they can sustain it for yeah. long periods of time. Tell me about the cricket frog. Yeah, so this is a, a species that's interestingly in South Dakota considered a state-threatened species, uh, but if you're down here in Vermilion along the Missouri River, uh, you can't go about, you know, 10 yards without seeing one. So that's what's kind of interesting about conservation and about species in particular. Um, you know, they can be, have a sort of long history of having a big distribution and being found everywhere, um, but that distribution is shrinking in most places. And so that's sort of how we, you know, designate these things as being in trouble or not. Uh, what I find super interesting um, about being here, so I've been in Vermilion now at University of South Dakota for almost 15 years. And uh, when I first got here, you know, I thought, wow, there's tons of frogs around here. This is great. Uh, but and what's interesting is we'll survey ponds, cattle ponds on people's land or whatnot. Uh, and what's intriguing to me is when I talk to the old timers, these, you know, 90 yeah. year old farmers, they ask me where have all the frogs gone? Huh. So it's this weird sort of extinction experience where uh, I'm teaching freshmen and we'll take them out, you know, in a class. 
and they'll be like amazed by all the frogs we find. But historically, there were orders of magnitudes more. And so that, that's kind of what we're up against now. It's this intriguing uh, experience. Of, there seem to be a lot of frogs for me because I don't know how many there should be. Right. In fact, they are declining pretty rapidly. So tell me how they sort of fit into a system as, as predators, as prey, as like why does that sort of sweet spot of how many we should have make an impact on the rest of the system? Yeah, amphibians as a whole, I mean, we learn about them in elementary school. Why? Because they have this cool thing called metamorphosis, right? Yeah. So we know them as eggs and then tadpoles, and then they go this you know, wonderful transformation to become uh, you know, frogs. And, and if you think about that a little bit more, what makes them really compelling then is that while they're tadpoles, they're living in the water. So they're experiencing conditions of water. So if water quality is off, if there is no water, that really affects you know, their life cycle. Um, and also tadpoles, of course, we know are eating on vegetation, algae, and things like that. So they're, you know, in a sense, herbivores or vegetarians, if you will, as tadpoles. And then they go this tra- undergo this transformation to become adults in which they're out on land. And so they're experiencing all the challenges of being on land and, you know, conversion of land use, urbanization, all that sort of stuff. And so they have to face, you know, challenges as adults there, too. But also they're flipping and now they're eating bugs. So they're more predatory. So they seem to be really important in terms of just overall ecosystems uh, and having important links in both um, systems, water and land and in the, you know, sort of food chain, if you will, um, being at several different parts of it. So what does it mean, this sort of northward movement? Like how how many, how far, what's happening in Nebraska and the places that they're leaving behind? Um, Tell us what it's really like versus what it's like in my imagination, which is this big, you know, group of frogs picking up their suitcases and heading north. No, that's exactly what they do, Laura. They have these sweet little tiny, they're cute. The it's adorable. It's like Beatrix yeah. Potter. It's a Beatrix exactly. Potter book, yes. Yeah. Um, no, I think oftentimes they're they're... They're tied to water, right? I mean, that's sort of just what they're known for. So they're generally sort of following along waterways um, for the most part. Depending on the species, though, it's really interesting because some species can actually migrate over long spaces of of land. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, generally when we talk about different kinds of species, um, you know, they're used to certain types of climate. They're used to certain types of conditions. Uh, And with climate change occurring, basically those conditions are slowly changing over time. Um, and of course, just like people, there's some super adventurous people and there's some super conservative, you know, people, I'm not going to do anything crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are frogs like that. And so we see certain individuals of the group, you know, braving to go in this new area where suddenly there's all these new resources that no one else is using. And so, so that sort of happens in that way. And as we sort of have this, this warming trend going on, um, you know, particularly in places that are cold like South Dakota, those ranges are starting to expand. And so places where, you know, we used to see cricket frogs, you know, not very far north in, in, in South Dakota, we're beginning to see them more and more north. And we predict that that will continue to happen, actually, um, and continuing moving up uh, through the state. Yeah. So when we think of climate change, we also think of these extreme weather events. And, and certainly, as I mentioned, um, a rather harsh winter in some ways here in southeastern South Dakota. How susceptible are cricket frogs to flooding or drought or big snow events or other extreme weather? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question because they are highly susceptible, but also 
highly resilient. <laughs> so, so the thing about amphibians, in particular, like cr things like cricket frogs, is they're very short-lived. And so it actually can be challenging as for a biologist like myself, even with long-term data sets. You know, you ask, how's their population doing? And the answer to that question is, is it a buggy year or not a buggy year, right? So okay. if you go outside and you're super annoyed by bugs in, in South Dakota, that means there'll probably be a lot of frogs that year, right? Um, but, you know, just as we can see that, you know, some years we have a lot of water, some years we don't have a lot, or all these things are tied together in the ecology. Um, and so it's really the long-standing trends that are the important thing, right? So there's a lot of noise, I'll say, from year to year. And so you might go out and see hundreds of frogs and be like, what is Kirby talking about? These frogs are fine, right? Uh, but then the next year you might not notice frogs because, you know, not everybody cares about frogs as much as I do, right? <laughs> and so you just think they're everywhere all the time. But that's, you know, what we see, particularly with amphibians, are these sort of huge population um, uh, variations up and down. But because of that, and because that's, you know, sort of a natural thing for that to happen, um, they're actually quite adapted to surviving those years of no water. So, so they can do okay with a year or two, even three, of these sort of drought conditions. But when it gets sort of past that, that's when it becomes a problem. And so here in South Dakota, I think, you know, while we have some challenges with our water for sure, it's not nearly as it is maybe out in the western United States mm -hmm. where amphibians are being re really hard because they have these long-standing droughts um, and just bodies of water aren't coming back that normally would be there. So it's sort of a really a case-by-case, region-by-region kind of thing. Yeah. So you mentioned noise. We're going to hear a little bit of what the cricket frog sounds like right now for context. How's he making that sound? What is? What am I listening to? Lori, that's not a frog. It's supposed to go ribbit. What are you doing? <laughs> and it's supposed to have a little suitcase. <laughs> that's right. You're destroying our images. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, frogs are really cool because they have these these vocal sacs um, that basically blow up full of air. Um, and, and I don't know if, if people are, are singers or whatnot. You know, you sort of understand the raising your diaphragm and filling up your you know. Um, sort of belly full of air to blow out strong sounds. And that's exactly what they do. And, it, and like we have vocal cords, they have, you know, similar structures um, that, that change from species to be species. And so, you know, I think traditionally we all learn as kids that, ki that frogs go ribbit. But if you listen to, and of course we could do this with YouTube and, and yeah. the internet now, um, all the different species just within South Dakota, you'll hear very different sounding um, uh, sounds from each of these frogs, some really low and bassy like a bullfrog and some high-pitched like this cricket frog. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes they go along to their body size, but also not always. So <laughs> it's sort of really interesting. But yeah, but yeah. that is really an easy way for us to tell as biologists what's there. If you start to recognize this in the same way you can hear bird calls, frog calls are very similar. You can just go out to a spot and know what species are there. Yeah. Um, what... Is there communication based on? I mean, do you have a sense of that they're they're communicating with one another? They're you know, what does frog communication mean? Yeah, it's similar in, in most animals. Uh, there's there's a lot of different forms of communication. Some of it is to alert others of predators. Um, generally, like you know, be scared. There's someone here. Mm -hmm. Run away. Uh, maybe you know, listeners have heard this. If they encounter a pond with uh, bullfrogs. Um, often you'll hear a high-pitched squeak and then a splash. <laughs> and what they're really doing is letting everybody else know, you know, there's someone here, look out, right? So that's part of communication. Of course, mostly when we hear frogs, it's in the spring and summer, and that's, that's when they're mating. So a lot of these things are really dictated um, 
you know, in the sort of normal kind of biology of mating, females trying to evaluate if it's a good quality male or not based on their singing, you know, much as we do on the radio, basically. So. <laughs> I'm curious about when we were talking about, you know, a hardship or a stress on, on the species and, and you mentioned songbirds and, and people want to do things in their in their property. Do you attract frogs? Do you care if there's frogs? If you have a lot of bugs, do you want frogs? Talk a little bit about human interaction with these frogs. Are they a nuisance? Are they desirable? Um, how do you see those farmers reacting? I mean, I might be biased, but who wouldn't want a frog? I, I mean, know. I totally want frogs. So <laughs> yeah. we'll just we'll just tell you yeah. the truth. How do I get yeah. frogs in my backyard? Is what I'm right. really asking exactly. here. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's water. I mean, honestly, that's the challenge, I think, is, uh, you know, they like to have these bodies. Different species use things differently. So some some need deeper bodies of water. Some need more uh, are, are adapted to more shallow. But, you know, I think um, what things can help are sort of backyard ponds, you know, and, and a lot of people like to do sort of ornamental ponds and things like that. Or maybe you just have a farm space and you have a pond. Um, yeah, I think one of the challenges has been people draining those ponds, right? Um, and so on ag fields, of course, you know, we used to have lots of areas where you might have this water, but now we have new technology that you can sort of drain that water to farmland that was previously unfarmable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's impacting the species out in these wide open spaces, right? Um, but in backyards, often when people put in a pond, um, they, they generally like to put in fish, right? Because that's yeah. what goes in the pond. Uh, and unfortunately, that's like if you want frogs, don't do that. That's the worst thing you can do because the fish will just eat the frog eggs. Like they'll just decimate tadpoles and all that kind of stuff. And usually your pond's not big enough to support that. So, you know, just having a pond with frogs actually is very easy if you just set something up in your backyard and let it sit. You know, we live in an area where these things are natural. The frogs will come if you yeah. build it. They will come. <laughs> just don't put fish in it. That makes me happy. <laughs> Pesticides, uh, mosquito spraying, how sus- um, susceptible are they? We just have about 30 seconds left to um, poisoning. Yeah, it, and that's variable as well, but also really important to consider. Um, I mean, that's a whole part of my research lab is looking at impacts of different kinds of chemicals on these frogs. And, and sadly, of course, as you'd expect, there's some pretty big impacts that we see with particular um, chemicals and particular frogs. And so uh, that's a big thing, I think, to be aware of and be cautious of. Of course, you know, clean water for frogs means clean water for us. I think it's we're all on the same side there. Yeah. But that's something to really, you know, be aware of. That was Lori Walsh's conversation with South Dakota herpetologist Dr. Jake Kirby. He joined the show last February. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. Your body's immune system is your defense system against illness. Immune cells target and destroy germs, rogue cells, or any invader that just doesn't look like they should be there. But when it comes to cancer cells, the immune system is often completely fooled. Dr. Rachel Willand-Charnley is an assistant professor of chemistry and biochemistry at South Dakota State University. Their research dives into how cancer cells send up false, I'm a healthy cell messages that trick the immune system. Here's the conversation Lori had with Dr. Will and Charnley back in February. Their conversation was both enlightening and informational, but more importantly, it was human. So the work that you do is interdisciplinary, and it's going to be hard for people to understand all of the details of it. But broadly speaking, you're trying to understand how cancer cells behave in a way to help us fight cancer, right? That's the basics of it. Yes. So um, 
to put to put it simply, uh, you've begun to hit the nail on the head. Uh, part of my program, part of my work that we're discussing today, focuses on understanding how cancer really communicates with various cells that are part of your immune system. So, in other words, my work focuses on understanding how cancer communicates with your immune system. And we specifically are interested in understanding what tactics uh, right now we are focused on lung and colon cancer employ to manipulate that communication for its benefit with your immune system. Okay. Now, right there, I want to ask you a question about, (laughs) I'm already going to go down a rabbit hole, um, but then we'll come back to the research. We often communicate about cancer in language of combat. It's a battle. It's a war. We're going to fight it. And immediately you are communicating in the language of dialogue and communication and how things Mm -hmm. um, that feels interesting to me. Can you say more about that as far as like how you as a scientist bring that sort of humanities based question into your work? Sure. I I believe I understand what you're asking. Um, uh, the first, you know, I, my perspective is that we often think of components of our bodies as very foreign. And as scientists, we need to find ways in which to relate to these biochemical processes uh, so that we can better understand them and then relate our findings to the general public. And the bottom line is you really don't have to try that hard because, um, you know, what is happening in biological systems between our cells is that our cells communicate just like we communicate with one another. The abstract aspect of this is that how our cells communicate just is a little bit differently than, for example, how you and I are using our vocal cords to communicate to one another in words. Um, What we have learned as, and I'll drop some terminology that I can explain. So, Um, categorically, I'm an organic chemist, a glycobiologist, and a cancer immunologist. And the aspect of our work, my work that we're discussing today, is me as a glycobiologist, which is a scientist who studies sugars Mm -hmm. and the role that sugars play in biological processes. And specifically pertinent to our conversation is how those sugars are used by cancer in in those types of disease processes. Um, And this is where the immunology folds in. And so how is this all relative to communication of these cells in our body? Well, uh, first we need to understand uh, that the cells in our bodies are literally covered in a layer of sugar residues. And we as glycobiologists, uh, we affectionately refer to this layer of sugar residues as the sugar coat. So I met, I really think of cells putting on a coat made of sugar, but okay. I mean, the reality yeah. is, is that if, you know, cells, our cells in our body are coated in various sugars that are appended to cell surface lipids and proteins. Um, and this is how, this is the reason why we care about this sugar coat, if you will, is because the sugar coat is the first form of communication between cells in our bodies. 
And with that in mind, so let's just recap what I've said. I've said that, you know, cells in our body are covered in a layer of sugar residues. And aside from offering protection to our cells, this layer of sugar residues, they are um, forms of communication between cells. Now, with that in mind, cancer, these are our cells, they also wear a sugar coat. Um, but what my lab has discovered and what other labs have been working on for years now is that cancers can overexpress certain certain types of sugar residues and they can utilize a very specific sugar residue that my lab studies called sialic acid mm -hmm. to manipulate communication between that cancer cell and your immune system. And uh, a recent publication in the Journal of Glycobiology that we published focused on that communication between lung and colon cancers and how uh, certain lung and colon cancers were able to hide in plain sight from mm -hmm. your own immune system and specifically from natural killer cells. Um, in other words, cancers use certain sugar residues and very specific structural features on said sugar residues to manipulate and evade your immune system. And Right now, this is a large focus of my program. We have a paper that's currently under review with Frontiers in Oncology that um, sheds light on how those same types of cancer use a very specific sugar residue that I mentioned called sialic acid um, to participate in multi-drug resistance. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm really excited for that story to come out. I mean, it's hard. It's I say that and then I'm reining myself in. I'm excited to share the story about cancer and manipulating your immune system or, you know, engaging right. multi-drug resistance. But it's it's important <laughs> that we, you know, that yeah. we uh, share this work with everyone who wants to listen, you know, so that it can inform, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies and and glycan therapeutic development, which is also something my lab works on. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your lab at SDSU. Does it involve students, other professors, other scientists, help people understand how the lab functions and how this kind of research can really come out of a South Dakota university? Oh, sure. Um, so, uh, all as a professor, I'm the primary investigator of, of my lab. So I have an organic chemistry lab and then um, this biochemistry program and lab. And so, yeah, I have undergraduate students. I have a very robust and healthy, um, I hate to say supply of undergraduate researchers. And then my lab functions with them and, and graduate students. And I, I do have a couple of postdocs that kind of come in and out of the lab, but mostly my research it, I'm no longer really what we say at the bench. Mm -hmm. Um, I have now transitioned to mostly um, just that giving oversight, running the programs, writing grants, publishing papers, um, fostering the next generation of scientists, uh, training them to be their own primary investigators at some point in the very near future. Yeah. Um, I believe I answered one of your questions. Yes. And, and I want to know what kind of you know, in this this hiding in plain sight paper, which I have in front of me, you know, it mentions some mm -hmm. of the the methodology and the CRISPR gene editing. And so t oh, take, sure. us, take us inside the lab. And, you know, I think a lot of people who are listening to this show would have a general idea of what CRISPR is. How does that intersect with the research that you were doing 
on how cancer cells behave? Yes, so good question. Um, so I mentioned that my lab is particularly interested in a certain type of uh, sugar. Now your body, when we say sugar, most people think table sugar, but right. um, your body, there are nine canonical forms of sugar that are, and I mean native to your body that are participatory in biochemical processes and that your body needs. And out of those canonical sugar residues, we know, for example, and this is where CRISPR comes in, that there is a very specific type of sugar residue, sialic acid, that is actually overexpressed in cancers. And so we consider it a hallmark of cancer when we see this one sugar residue overexpressed in the sugar coat. Now, sialic acid out of those native sugar residue residues, it is very structurally diverse. Uh, so it can have many different types of what we call functional groups hanging off of its structure. And the CRISPR gene editing comes in because I am very interested in, so out of the five cancer-associated forms of sialic acid, my lab is very interested in one functional group alteration on sialic acid called an acetyl and how that functional group converts to a hydroxyl group or what people are more commonly familiar with a hydroxyl group in alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so if you're interested in studying how this functional group alters communication between itself and your immune system, then you need a way to study that functional group when it's present and when it's absent on, uh, on the sugar residue. And that's where CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing mm -hmm. came in. Um, so I developed these cell lines during my time as a postdoc at, at, in Carolyn Bertozzi's lab at Stanford University. And I removed the genes that were that are responsible for putting that functional group onto sialic acid. And so the two genes that I removed in different cell lines are sialic acid acetyl esterase, which takes the acetyl group off of the structure, and then CASTI1 puts the acetyl group on. And so by using CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, I had a very direct method to ensuring that this cell line lacks the ability to put the acetyl group on and this other cell line lacks the ability to take it back off. And so oh. that's how I used it. <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. The part that I understand good. is super fascinating. Um, one of the questions okay, I good. wanted to know is that, um, so is your research looking to understand how this behaves or is your research also looking into therapeutics? Because you mentioned cancer immunology. Is that for somebody else to build on or is that something that you're also trying to do with your own work? Yes. So we actually received funding um, because we have already begun paving the way for glycan therapeutics. So nice. my lab um, has developed antibody enzyme conjugates that specifically target that functional group on the cell surface. And we're, we have studies that are underway to see how effective that glycan therapeutic will be. Um, as we work to continue to understand, you know, the, I, you know, metaphorically, I'm saying motivation for these cancers to have overexpressed these sialic acids, et cetera. You know, I do take comfort in knowing that there are already uh, promising glycan therapeutics that are going through clinical trials right now because we acknowledge that this is an issue, that this is this these overexpressed sugar residues are being used in 
uh, by cancer in negative ways. And so as we work to understand um, all of these biochemical processes, I, I do take solace in, in knowing that you have scientists that have already begun, aside from me, paving the way um, for these type of chemotherapeutics, essentially. Mm. How important is funding how important is um, being supported in the lab by the university, by the state legislature, by, um, you know, other, um, you know, other mm-hmm. colleagues. Sometimes it, there's so many things happening in the world. It's, it's hard to, to, to know where to put funding and focus. How critical is that? I think that it's paramount, um, you know, for years, glycobiology in general, the study of sugars and, their role in cancer and other disease processes really stayed under the radar. And it was not for lack of trying. It wasn't for lack of other glycobiologists continuing to to work very diligently to bring this field and the importance of this field to light. And I am very thankful that I have I, I, you know, a lot of my funding right now is actually coming from the Board of Regents, as well as um, the NIH and the National Cancer Institute. And um, continuing to fund programs in which we are investigating some aspects, some disease, some cancer, as it relates to glycobiology, I believe is going to continue to be a substantive area of focus that continuously will need funding. Because again, when we think about, and I I apologize for the the belabored answer. If you think about what I said at the beginning of this chat, you know, what's at the forefront of communication? It's sugar residues and that's glycobiology. And if this is, if these sugar residues are what are covering all of our cells and, and they are integral in communication, then for me, that's where the forefront of research needs to be right now. But I mean, I'm bi- I'm biased because I'm a glycobiologist, right. <laughs> you know. You know, as a as a as a regular, well, as a journalist and, and as a, a family member, cancer has touched my family in mm-hmm. so many different ways. And I remember, you know, everybody's thinking about Jimmy Carter right now, the former president, and when he first went through like some kind of immunotherapy for cancer treatment, everybody was like, what does that mean? And we all started thinking differently about cancer. My brother went through CAR-T treatment mm-hmm. and we're like, what does that mean? <laughs> and had to learn what that was. And um, it's it's devastating to have this. I always say it's super fascinating unless it's happening to you. Um, but it's devastating right. to have these conversations sometime. And yet it gives me great hope as a family member that there are these, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, honestly, I mean, it's super personal now, but one of the things, you know, oh, my sure. brother Wes was part of these clinical trials with the CAR-T treatment, and he didn't make it um, through. It wasn't effective for him, but we said it will help someone else. If you go through, <laughs> if you go through this suffering as a patient, mm-hmm. we knew there were scientists measuring mm-hmm. everything that happened to his body, and mm-hmm. 50 years from now, I mean, that might save someone else. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> for the work oh, that you do. In you're lab. welcome. <laughs> that changes our lives it's, in some ways. Yeah. It's absolutely my pleasure. And yeah. I really sympathize with, with what you 
had experienced and still experience and um you do have my deepest sympathies and i mean uh, yeah and i'm 38 years old and i say that unabashedly yeah <laughs> and um i have experienced uh, family members uh, one family in particular that comes to mind who had a, a multi-form glioblastomas which is a very difficult cancer to treat and then you know a couple of family members who have had colon cancer and breast cancer and you know the research is absolutely uh two steps forward one step back or sometimes it feels like one step forward two steps back and uh sincerely there is not a day that goes by that i'm not always keeping in mind who my work is for yeah. and um that is definitely a motivation that keeps me going because our jobs as scientists we dedicate our lives to working to develop and offer solutions to problems that are facing society um even if we don't see the payoff in the next 5 years or the next 10 years um at some point our research will be of some value down the line That was Dr. Rachel Willen Charnley. They're an assistant professor at South Dakota State University and head of the Willen Charnley Lab. They spoke with Lori Walsh last February. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry in for Lori Walsh. When algae grows out of control, it becomes an algae bloom. Besides being scummy and smelly, these blooms could be harmful to your health. and that's been reinforced by research coming out of Black Hills State University. Dr. Matthew Paulus is an assistant professor of biology and Brian Burton is a student at BHSU. They joined in the moment last April for a deep dive into their algae research. Take a listen. Dr. Paulus, let's start with you and help people understand your research question and what drew you to this study. Sure, yeah. So, we're interested in sort of the mechanisms that might lead to the people basically coming down with sporadic um, neurological diseases so things like ALS and parkinsons that you might not necessarily have a known genetic predisposition to developing but you might develop them anyway as you get older so one idea is is that you know these things are sort of being caused maybe by people being exposed to toxins pollutants and other factors in the environment that um might cause these diseases to sort of show up in humans. So our research is really sort of looking at one of these possible factors um that's been associated with some of these diseases and trying to figure out really what is it doing at the cell level? Um how is it working? What might we be able to figure out in the future as far as stopping this from uh basically occurring to cause disease in humans. Yeah, and tell me uh professor the idea of bringing students into research. What's the role of a professor in a student relationship here? um from an educational standpoint. Well, I think it's it's really great from basically the professor and the student perspective. You know, from my perspective, I get a lot of really interested um uh workers. Um they're you know, are interested in basically learning how science is done. Um they get hands-on uh sort of experience working with a lot of, you know, molecular cell-based techniques here. Um and I feel like, you know, that benefits me. I get obviously more work done i get uh, to publish papers get to do talks 
um, using their research and they benefit from basically uh, getting sort of the mentorship of what it's like in a biomedical research laboratory um, and experience with some of these techniques that they might be able to use in a job later on in life. Yeah, Brian, how is, re how is science done? What was, what was your role in this project? So my role in the project was, you know, performing a lot of the different techniques in the lab and also conceptualizing the experiment and writing a lot of the publication in conjunction with Dr. Paulus and some of the other colleagues in our lab. My favorite part was probably getting to um, use cell culture techniques. So that's growing cells in a dish. And so we have human brain cells um, from a couple of different cell types within the brain. And we're able to grow those in petri dishes in a sterile environment. And I really love being able to look through the microscope and just kind of watch them as they grow, get kind of an unprecedented view that I have never been able to experience of cell growth and really get to understand the different dynamics between cell types in the brain. I would suspect that this would be a uh not a make or break moment, but the kind of moment where you say, yeah, I am in fact interested in this, or nope, this is not the right field for me. I'm a college student. I can make a pivot. What Does this impact what you want to do in the future at all? Absolutely. So um, I was really impressed that this opportunity was available to me at BH whenever I first came. I'm a master's student um, with my master's of science in integrative genomics. So whenever I found Dr. Paulus's lab and he reached out to me about being in his lab, I was really excited because, you know, working with human cell lines and doing cell culture and um, protein signaling, all these different things are really kind of state-of-the-art technology and really interesting research. So I was really excited to be able to participate in something like that, um, even all the way out here in South Dakota. I'm originally from Houston, so I was really pleasantly surprised with the facilities, the um, you know, the different equipment and things that are available here at BH, I was really impressed. So it's been exciting to get a chance to use these tools and it's definitely very marketable to me now, having just graduated in December as Dr. a Paulus, this is, thank you. Um, Dr. Paulus, this is three years of research at least and a publication in a peer reviewed scientific journal. Tell me a little bit about what you hope, doctor, is the impact of this particular study beyond the education, beyond the, uh, you know, the the mission of Black Hill State. What do you hope the research will do in the world? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, this is, this line of research is appealing to me for several different reasons. I think, you know, I, my hope is that this is sort of the start of maybe a growing appreciation for how environmental factors um, like the toxin we study might cause these neurological diseases. Um, and we might find out in the future that this isn't the only toxin working through this mechanism. So. Um, I would hope that maybe someday we find out, you know, there might be sort of a common um, developmental uh, pathway or signaling pathway that's being targeted by many different toxins. Um, and that might make treatment of these types of disorders a whole lot easier. So if we understand how uh, toxins work to cause the disease, um, you know, someday we might be able to design treatments and things um, that might sort of help cure the diseases or at least limit their spread in humans. Um, I, I also was, hope. Yeah. Oh, yeah no, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go. I, I was just going to say, I hope it also sort of maybe helps raise awareness of, you know, how environmental issues might impact human health in a sort of a direct way. Um, so, mm -hmm. like, as you mentioned at the, at the start of our little segment, um, you know, algae blooms are driven by, you know, warming oceans and waterways. 
um, agricultural runoff, pollutants. Um, so they're becoming more frequent. And I, so I think this problem of sporadic neurological disease is only going to continue to get worse um, you know, as the environment sort of changes and warms. And so I think if there's a wider appreciation for sort of the direct health effects associated with environmental change, it might help raise some awareness of, of some of these issues. I hope you're keeping your eyes peeled for the return of some iconic orange and black wings this spring. But before monarchs can flutter through your garden, they have to survive a chemical battle as caterpillars. Dr. Carrie Olson Manning is an expert on that subject. Her research covers how milkweed protects itself from getting munched and how caterpillars equip themselves to do some munching. Dr. Olson Manning is the founder and principal investigator of the Olson Manning Lab at Augustana University. She spoke with Lori Walsh in April. Tell me a little bit about your lab because that's always fascinating to me. Yeah, my lab is really interested in how plants, um, specifically milkweeds, adapt to different environments and how they deal with like the normal stresses that they have to deal with. So, you know, not enough water or bugs munching them, things like that. So when I was a little kid, we would find milkweed in ditches and we would, you know, my mother decorated with it. Yes, that's so common. You would bring it home and put it in a milk can. Is it the same milkweed as when I was a kid? Oh, definitely. Okay. Yeah, definitely. If you grew up um, east of East River, essentially yeah. anywhere, yeah. Um, the most common milkweed that you're likely to find is the common milkweed, and that's one of the ones we study. If you're West River, we study a different species um, that's actually very, very similar. Yeah. So, and you yeah. still find it in the wild, right? You still find oh, definitely. It in yeah. Okay. Oh, it's it's um, once you start to notice it, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. How do I bring this kind of pollinator? pollinator garden to my own oh, def- we can talk about residential that, yeah. space. But first, tell us a little bit about this uh, presentation. Yeah, I'm going to go up. and we're yeah. going to talk about these two different species that we study. One is East River and one is West, West River. Um, actually, both of the species extend all the way out to the coasts um, okay. in both directions. But they meet here in South Dakota and they uh, they can they can hybridize together. So kind of like mm. how a light like a lion and a tiger together make a liger. Okay. Um, they kind of make little milkweed ligers. Um, but <laughs> do they uh, have a scientific name? No, no. They're, they're just together? the hybrid between hybrid. Okay. the hybrid between the two species. And so we're sitting in that dynamic. Like, what happens when these two different species come together yeah. that are adapted to super different environments? Right. So in the West, it's very dry. Um, not a lot of vegetation for competition. And in the East, it's much wetter, but there's lots of competition. More herbivores. More more monarchs that are munching on them. So, yeah, we're studying what happens when when these different species that are, you know, basically very, very different in how they deal with their environments come together and... Yeah. Yeah. And as the climate changes, then that 100th meridian factor also changes. Tell me what you're seeing with climate change and the milkweed. Yeah, we've just started to kind of peer into that. And what we're seeing is that, yeah, that 100th meridian is sort of migrating. The the divide between the arid west and the humid east, right, Um, is moving east. And so as the species um, make hybrids, maybe the more optimal place for them to be is, is kind of moving in the easterly direction, where it's becoming drier, yeah. uh, more westerly. Yeah. Take us to the granular level and what's happening with the milkweed trying to protect itself from getting eaten and the caterpillar really needing to, to adapt to being able to get its source. Yeah, these, these two species, the milkweeds, there's 100 different species of milkweed, but monarchs okay. like all of them, um, or most of them. 
uh, they have been locked in this like evolutionary battle, this battle for like, you know, trying not to be eaten and defending yourself and, 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 uh, becoming a moderate butterfly yeah. for um, a long, long time. And so they have they've really uh, spent a lot of time, you know, coming up with one comes up with a defense and then the other figures out a way to get around it. Um, and so one of the most important defenses that the milkweed has is a slew of chemicals. Like if a plant is starting, you know, something's eating a plant, it can't run away. So it really needs to have this like chemical arsenal of, you know, these uh Things that like deter the herbivores or, yeah. or hurt them in some way or make them not hungry or something like that so that the plant doesn't get eaten to the ground. Does it and, do all these things? Does it uh, does it trick, poison, hide? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean... Yeah, what are some of the different ways that the milkweed is deterring? Yeah, so um, one of the most famous compounds that the milkweed produces is they're called cardenolides, and they're called card because they're involved in your heart like cardio. Okay. Um, and essentially that chemical binds to the these special pumps that are in um, the heart or the nervous system of insects, and it can kill them, right? Um, they also make a, a bunch of other different compounds uh, that do all sorts of different things. Yeah. So we're, especially on the, um, specifically in the uh, on tap Discovery on Tap this week, we're going to be looking at a different class called um, phenylpropanoids, which yeah. I guess... Maybe it's more than you need to know, but um, no, essentially... No, I need to know it all. We oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes, you're right. So these are um, really diverse compounds that can act as sunscreens, and they can act um, to help signal during drought, but they also help protect against the monarch caterpillars as well. So How do you see that? How do you know it's there? Oh, oh my gosh. We've done so many different very cool studies. Yeah. Um, so I have an instrument in my lab where we can separate the different compounds and detect them and measure them so we can actually extract them from the plants and look at them. Right. But at the Discovery on Tab, we're going to use sort of a different way of looking at them. And if those phenylpropanoids are, you know, being produced by the plant, this chemical reaction will turn blue. And okay. so it's this thing you can see with your eyes. And there I'm going to bring some stressed out plants and some not so stressed out plants. And we're going to see how they differ in the amount of defensive chemicals they're making. People are super into plants right now. I so know. this is going to be, That's yeah. Great. It's going to yeah. be great. Oh, I'm so excited. And I'm wondering if you, because I think, and I know you're, um, I think you're taking milk seeds and can people are going to take, so people are going to, yeah. my point is that people are going to be involved in a STEM activity. And for people my age, especially females my age, um, STEM education wasn't pushed like it is now for younger people. I'm so glad that that change is happening. But even women who didn't have that opportunity in school can go to an event and have that opportunity yeah. now. I think that's fantastic. That is so wonderful. And actually, if anyone who comes to that or who wants to get in contact with me is interested in doing some of this research, yeah. this hybrid zone between these two species is, you know, it's basically, it's the whole country is interesting. And so we would love to plant gardens lots of different places with both of these species and to study their survival. And so if anyone is interested, they should definitely get in contact with me and maybe we can use some of your land to plant one of the gardens and they can contribute to this scientific study. Yeah. How important is it that that milkweed exists? We've been kind of focusing on the plant, but the caterpillars do need something to munch. Yeah. I mean, if you if you love monarchs, you, yeah. you have to plant milkweed. Um, there is no other plant that the uh, monarchs can survive on. And so... You know, don't spray it um, if you have it on your farm. It's not really a weed, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it is a native plant. It's supposed to be here. 
Um, and it's so important for the life cycle of that monarch. So, And don't only focus on monarchs. You want to plant all sorts of natives. And, um, you know, there's lots of resources on the types of plants you could put in your garden to create like a a garden that would help all pollinators, not just monarchs or bees yeah. or whatever, but all the things that are native here. I love that. I seem to have the bees down in my yard in a good way. Great. I love them. Oh, yeah. I don't have as many butterflies. So I'm going to have to look at what is attracting the bees, but n- not as many butterflies. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, butterflies are, um, they need a host plant. They need specific plants. Okay. Like the, the monarchs need the milkweed. Other pollinators that are butterflies need different yeah. plants. So... Yeah, we can talk. I can. I'm all in. I'm all in. (laughs) This is going to be my new summer hobby. I love it. My winter hobby was needlepoint. I stitched so much this winter. My summer hobby, I might become obsessed with milkweed. So you'll hear from me. That's our show today. We hope that it served you. Tomorrow, we're continuing our week of science coverage by revisiting conversations about a technological advancement that's already reshaping our lives, artificial intelligence. It can make our lives easier by automating certain tasks, improving efficiency, and helping us see the world through the eyes of a visionary. Hear from a doctor, tech experts, and an artist for their takes on artificial intelligence. That's on Thursdays in the moment. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. From all of us at SDPB, thank you for listening.